Uh, well, as Helen comes up to uh, read the Bible for us, I invite you to find on your pew Bibles uh, Acts chapter 10. There's a page number behind me, I think. Thanks, Helen. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, 
God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Hi, uh, my name's Jamie, if we haven't met before. It'd be great to keep that passage of the Bible open in front of you. Well, what's been the biggest turning point in history that you've lived through? I'm sure um, lots here today will remember where you were on September the 11th, 2001. Uh, for me, it was an interruption to Cheese TV before school, uh, just old enough to realise that something big was going down. Um, but at the time, as I'm sure for all who were around for it, it was hard enough just to believe what my eyes saw on the screen. A tragic turning point that has since shaped everything from the way airport security works to a fresh world of fears that directors uh, for film draw on. And we're living through one now, aren't we? I'm a dad of two kids under two, and sometimes I wonder if COVID-19 is something that Ari and Priya will have memories of, um, or will it just be something that we tell them stories about, and they'll be like, okay, dad, enough about the finding toilet paper adventures. Either way, being COVID babies is bound to shape them and it's just hard to process what the implications of this turning point in history might be for them. 
There are lots of turning points out there. The day you moved cities. The day you met someone who changed your life. For me, I had no way of knowing what a big deal it would be be when I was 15 and my parents decided to be part of the team that was starting a new church down in Brighton. But Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, reckons there's an even bigger turning point that we're all affected by. That's still sending shockwaves through lives today, almost 2,000 years later. The day a crucified man walked out of his grave. And this world of death started to turn upside down. And today's passage shows us another turning point. One of the shockwaves, if you will, of that empty grave. As the news about this Jewish Messiah reaches people who seem just as far from God as you can get, the Gentiles. You might have picked up as you heard Acts 10 that just what a massive deal this was for Peter, one of the first Christians. Jesus promised back in chapter 1 that he would reach the world through those first disciples. And we've seen him delivering on that promise against all the odds over the last few weeks. But today, as the gospel hits the ends of the earth we get a sense of how hard it was for Peter to wrap his head around that particular implication. Like all massive turning points, the things Jesus said and did generated lots of doubt and denial from the start as people just struggled to process the implications. That's why Luke wrote Acts, so that doubting believers and skeptics alike might know for sure that the risen Jesus is active in the world today. I wonder what doubts you bring in with you today about Jesus. Do you know what it's like to wonder if it could all be true? If you've been a Christian for a while, have you ever found yourself questioning whether Jesus' mission to reach the world through people like us could be for real. There seem to be heaps of barriers, no shortage of people groups who are far from God. There's apathy, there's hostility, there's the struggles of trying to start a new church during a pandemic, for example. And this pivotal chapter in Acts is here to tell us how the risen Jesus meets us in those doubts as we meet an honest seeker, a doubting believer, and the judge who is also saviour. And they're the headings you'll find in your leaflet this morning. Let's start with Cornelius, an honest seeker. Uh, Let's read again from verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. If you were one of Jesus' followers in the first century AD, I reckon the mention of a centurion would uh, fill you with fear. They worked for Rome. They weren't exactly known for being nice to people who believed in a king other than Caesar, like a Messiah. If you were Peter, you would have seen a centurion's soldiers leading Jesus off to be crucified not long before. Wasn't it the centurion's job to stand there and make sure the person being executed was dead? Uh, The Romans were very thorough at that job. So here is this soldier, Cornelius, in the Roman metropolis of Judea. 
I picture someone pretty well built who knows how to be ruthless when he needs to. If I was Peter, I'd be worried about this guy finding out who I am, uh, let alone hopeful that he might become a Christian. But then in the same breath, there's verse 2. Cornelius the centurion was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. He's a complex character for sure, um, as we all are. The idea of a pious centurion might have been quite mind-blowing for those first Christians. And then next level again, when you see down in verse 7, that he had a friend who was a devout soldier. Devout soldier, pious centurion, kind of sound like oxymorons. But according to Luke, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. We might remember the centurion who looked for Jesus in Luke 7. Or one of the first people who tasted the power of the cross firsthand. The centurion standing there who, after seeing how Jesus died, couldn't help but praise God. There's more to people than meets the eye, isn't there? You've got the walking contradiction of, you know, the religiously good people in Jerusalem who knew all the Old Testament prophecies that pointed so clearly to Jesus and yet didn't want a bar of him. And then you've got centurions, the muscle of the enemy, searching for something more. Maybe standing on the edge of synagogues and hearing those same Old Testament words and wondering if there might be a better kind of authority, a king who's strong and kind. Whatever it was, Cornelius was seeking. And it changed how he acted. He, he showed unusual kindness to the Jewish people. And he prayed to the God he hoped might hear him. I think the really striking thing, though, isn't so much that a centurion might be thinking about Jesus. It's that Jesus might be thinking about him. And so in the complex mess of human life, the extraordinary breaks in in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Uh, That's enough to terrify even a soldier. But listen to the word of comfort and grace that Jesus' messenger has for him. Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's quite stunning. It's not like God is impressed by our efforts to do good. He knows the depths of our hearts and the mixed motives better than anyone. And yet God noticed this man Jesus saw that he was seeking to know him. Cornelius experienced what Christians through the centuries have since found. He started out thinking that he was looking for God, only to find that God was chasing him down first. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Jesus has been thinking about this centurion, He's teed up everything so that Cornelius might hear the truth he's been searching for. This honest seeker needs to hear the gospel so that he can find hope in the king who laid it all down for his sake. This irreligious Gentile could rightly be called more devout than many of the religious of his day. Not because he was a better person, 
but because he was open to hearing about Jesus. I think there's a challenge there for us. Could it be that there are pious centurions around us today? People searching for God who we dismiss because they don't fit the religious mold. I think of my friend Deron from Sydney. Someone asked me if I could pick up this guy Deron on my way to growth group and so I got to have these car rides with him. He was this big, tough guy uh, who'd known more than his fair share of trouble in the past and he spoke about how he tried joining churches in the past but he always ended up leaving because he felt judged for being a smoker and smelling like smoke. He just hadn't been able to kick that habit and it meant so much for him to be a part of a church where the smell of cigarettes didn't exclude you from learning from the Bible. And I've got to say, Deron didn't fit the mould, but he loved Jesus. Who are the people in your life who just seem so removed from church culture? where It's just hard to imagine them being open to Jesus. Kind of different example, as I walk around these leafy streets, am I tempted to assume that the busy, happy and together people I see wouldn't be interested in a Christian bothering them about the big questions of life? Could it be that these people are thinking about God more than we acknowledge? Or perhaps more sobering, could God be thinking about them more than we acknowledge? If that's a challenge for you, it is for me, let's learn with Peter, a doubting believer. We first meet Peter in Luke's biography of Jesus. He becomes one of Jesus' closest friends, a leader among the disciples. He's an eager follower of Jesus, but also a bit slow to learn. And he too is complex. He knows his share of regrets. It's hard to think about Peter without remembering that terrible night of Jesus' trial. And Peter said he'd follow Jesus anywhere. But that night he denied even knowing him, not once, not twice, but three times, just as Jesus predicted. But Peter knew the overflowing kindness and forgiveness of his Lord better than anyone. Peter saw the scars on the risen Jesus' hands and feet and knew that Jesus paid the debt of his shame and failure before God. And so in Acts, we meet Peter as a changed man, no longer shrinking back, but willing to stand before the same authorities that arrested Jesus, come what may, and preach of God's kingdom coming near through those very events. He's a new man, but he's still Peter. He can still be a bit slow to learn, just like any believer. He's still learning from his saviour. You know, Jesus promised Peter that he would reach Judea, Samaria, and even the ends of the earth through his chosen witnesses. We've just read about Jesus tapping this Gentile centurion on the shoulder. He sent his delegation to find Peter, and we're thinking, here we go. But Peter, the leader of the mission, is thinking about lunch. In verse 10, we find him up on a rooftop in Joppa, praying while he waits for some food. And in that very human, hungry state, he falls into a trance. And once again, the divine breaks in. 
the sky cracks open and Peter sees all kinds of animals lower to the earth and he hears a voice saying, kill and eat. And it might just be that Peter's got food on the brain and everything's just starting to look like a giant chicken drumstick to him. We've all been there. But for Peter, there's something really unsettling about this image because he's Jewish and all his life he's followed the Old Testament food laws that taught God's special people, Israel, to eat some foods but not others. Certain foods like pork and shellfish were unclean. Any person who wanted to come near to God had to stay away from them. It was a reminder to a Jewish person in everyday life that they were impure and needed to be made clean to stand before a pure God. And more than that, in everyday life, remembering that they belonged to a God who was set apart from all the others, and so they needed to live differently to the people around them. This vision strikes at the heart of Peter's doubts. Not that he didn't believe that Jesus had a heart for all kinds of people and nations, But how was Peter, a Jewish man, meant to tell non-Jewish people about Jesus when it meant he might have to go near them and be made unclean by the food they ate? A bit like someone who's never been around smokers reacting to the smell of cigarettes. When Peter smells bacon cooking, he just gets that gut reaction. This isn't right. This, I can't do it. And so this command to kill and eat was confronting. But here's the lesson Jesus is teaching Peter. Verse 15. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God's grabbing Peter in this moment, telling him, don't miss the turning point. The time for those laws has passed because I have done something about the impurity problem. It never was about the food, it was about people's hearts, about our desire to get away from God, to do things our way, about the ugliness that tarnishes all of us, everyone, the greed, the hatred before a pure and good creator. Peter, I've done something about it and you were there when my son took all the filth and shame on himself and wore it and died for it and left it in his tomb. You saw it. The cross was as much for that centurion standing there as it was for you. So don't you call something impure that I have purified at such a cost. This turning point was so big that Peter had to be shown this vision not once, not twice, but three times. And it's easy for us to think Peter was just a bit slow on this one. But it's so hard to imagine what a big deal it was for him to think about going into a Gentile's home and relating in that close way. Yes, he'd heard Jesus say that the gospel was for all people with his own ears. But the shockwaves of the cross were still sinking in for Peter. That was the goal of those food laws. The moment that Jesus opened a way for Jew and Gentile alike to praise God together. And there's still so much today, isn't there, about Jesus' mission to reach all kinds of people that just seems unthinkable. Especially when we think about the part that we might have to play in that. 
But for anyone who is slow to learn, who finds it hard to imagine, let's be comforted by Peter's story. Because what a patient saviour he has. By his spirit, Jesus is walking Peter through this turning point. Reminds me a bit of my son Ari's swimming teacher, Susie. Um, After many a bath time of trying to stop Ari from inhaling water, there was something that just felt so wrong about the thought of willingly dunking him in a pool. Uh, And yet on another level, of course, I want him to be able to enjoy swimming when he grows up. So we took Ari to this, this class for little ones at Marion Pool and Susie stepped us through it. Okay, we're going to, this week, we're just going to splash some water on their heads. And then the day came. Okay, what we're going to do now is you're going to count to three. And then we're going to dunk him under and I'll catch him and you'll be all right. And yeah, Ari loved it. I'm very thankful for that gentle, just with me every step of the way instructor. And that's what the Holy Spirit is like here. He steps Peter through this very foreign but absolutely good and necessary thing. While Cornelius' friends are on their way, God gives him this vision. And then verse 17, while Peter's wondering about the meaning of the vision, uh, verse 17, yeah, Cornelius' men call out at the gate. Verse 19, Peter's still thinking about the vision and the Spirit encourages him. Okay, what's going to happen now? Is we're going to welcome them in, okay? And then verse 44, while Peter's still speaking to Cornelius and co, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message in an obvious way. And so while Cornelius turns to his saviour with joy, Peter's having a turning point of his own. As Jesus gently and expertly leads him to realise that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And really from here on in Acts, the good news spreads out fast to Jew and Gentile alike. I said before that Peter was the leader of the mission. Uh, but that's not quite right, is it? It's the risen Jesus that's leading the way here by his spirit. And what a journey he takes Peter on. Could Peter have guessed that just a few days before that he'd be having a sleepover at a centurion's house? But that joy of eating and hanging out together in each other's homes with all kinds of different characters has been a mark of Christian community from the start. Uh, Think of another friend, Dave. Uh, He's an ex-soldier, tough, tattooed. Uh, He ended up drinking Macca's coffee in the lounge room with an ex-hipster delicate flower, me. (laughs) How? Well, because the gospel is for everyone. He was an out-and-out rebel before he met Jesus. I was a politely stubborn rebel. And it was our mutual joy in a saviour who we desperately needed that brought us together even if I did still feel a little bit scared when he'd come up for a hug. (laughs) But we don't want to miss that, right? Here's a thought. There might be people in your life right now who you've currently written off, you could never imagine this for, who you might end up praying with around the kitchen table one day. Peter, this doubting believer, made such an impact on world history because he followed the leader. 
I think that has two implications for followers of Jesus today. First, we can pray for the hearts of those who we struggle to imagine ever being able to pray around the kitchen table together with. Because we've seen in no uncertain terms that Jesus goes ahead and he prepares people to hear about him. But second, we need to pray for our own hearts as well. Because sometimes we're the barrier. Jesus, help me to believe that you care about this person. They seem so far from you, but so was I, and you brought me near. Lord, please give me a heart that goes out to the people on my street. Please help me to find the time and the courage to speak to my neighbours, even though I confess I have my doubts about whether I can lead them to you. But you can. Imagine what it could mean for our church family, soon to be two, if we were all praying prayers like that about our own hearts and God was answering them. We're not promised particular visions or audible voices because we have God's heart revealed here in the Bible and his promise that Jesus is with us every step of the way. What happens when people have doubts that Jesus' mission to save all kinds of people is for real? He meets us in those doubts and he shows us his generous grace. And so Peter ends up visiting this centurion, perhaps walking into a Gentile house for the first time in his life and finding a crowd there gathered, ready, waiting to hear what he has to say. Point three. A few things stand out about Peter's message to this Gentile crowd. Um, First, it's not brand new to them. Verse 37, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. These things didn't happen in a corner. Uh, The crowd knows the events. They need someone to tell them what it all means. Second, they don't need to see it to believe it. Verse 41, when God raised Jesus... He wasn't seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us, Peter says, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people. Peter reassures them, you haven't missed out on a real personal relationship with Jesus by not being there physically. Sometimes we want to say to God, I'll believe in you if you give me an undeniable sign right now. It's not like God hasn't thought of that. No, but it was always his plan that these world-shaking events would happen publicly in history and be passed on by eyewitnesses whose lives were turned upside down. That's how God chose to make himself known to the world. And third, there's a real note in Peter's sermon that Jesus is for everyone, which makes sense given all he's learned in this chapter. Verse 36, he says, he is Lord of all. There's no one of whom Jesus is not the rightful king. Verse 42, Jesus is God's appointed judge of the living and the dead. At the end of the day, everyone from every place living and dead, will stand before this Lord of all. 
And whether we've been in active mutiny against the king or just acting like he doesn't exist, everyone, living and dead, will give an account to him. Which is why verse 43 is such liberating news. Everyone who believes in him for the forgiveness, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. As we read this chapter about the surprising goodness of a centurion, about God accepting those who fear him and do good, it's tempting to think that if you just try your best, you'll be okay in the end. But we're talking about the judge of the living and the dead here. Nothing escapes his notice, and he cares about justice. And Cornelius would be the first to tell you, Yeah, I was relatively a good person, but I needed to hear the gospel because I needed forgiveness. And that's what we all need, isn't it? Not to sweep our mess under the carpet, but to have it dealt with. When it comes to the Lord of all, everyone needs forgiveness. And in his incredible kindness, the judge makes forgiveness available for all. For everyone who tries a bit harder? No, for everyone who trusts in him. For the upstanding citizens? No, for those who bend the knee to Jesus. It's not about what you've done, but who you trust. Jesus says, come to me, whatever you've done, put it on my account, in my name. It's not about where you're from, but who you fear. Jew, Gentile, whatever background, Jesus hung on that cross for you. If you acknowledge him as your king today, you can face that day of judgment knowing that your judge is also your saviour. The Lord of all in his kindness is determined to reach all kinds of people with that offer of forgiveness. And he's given us this chapter in Acts so we know for sure that's what he's about now and that even doubting believers get a role to play in that mission. If you want further evidence of that, just look around this room. It is literally miraculous that we are here today. Even mid-pandemic when many have to stay away, the sight of this mixed crowd here singing the Lord is King would have absolutely blown Peter's mind. He would have found it so hard to process the idea that mostly Gentile people who don't follow Old Testament food laws might be his sisters and brothers in Christ. But we've received the Holy Spirit on the exact same basis that Peter did. Because anyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. The shockwaves of the cross have even reached us. And they're still rippling out, chasing out those who seem so far from God. Which means it's worth asking, could today be a turning point for you? Have you been wondering if Jesus is for real? Do you suspect that he's important but fear that maybe being a Christian is just for those who have it all together? Please hear today, Jesus welcomes those who don't fit the mold 
and he cleanses those who are stained. Is today that turning point for you where you need to admit to Jesus for the first time or again that the king's crown is on your head but it should be on his? Or is today's turning point just to resolve that it's time to start looking into Jesus honestly, start looking for some answers, maybe start praying that God would show himself to you? For others here today, maybe if you've been following Jesus for a while, could the turning point today for you be to start believing afresh that Jesus really is for all people? I don't know about you, but I find it easy to get a bit cynical, especially when I've tried to put it out there about Jesus to someone and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Or just to become a bit tired of the mission especially when there's a pandemic that makes our plans as a church to reach out to people with the gospel that extra bit hard to imagine? What might change today if we believed anew that Jesus really is the judge of the living and the dead and he really is calling all people to find forgiveness now while it's still the day of his mercy And that really is the big thing that's happening in the world at the moment. Amid all the uncertainty, what if we were really convinced that Jesus has people, just a stone's throw from this RSL, and down at Tonsley, searching for a saviour? Because he's the one that goes ahead of us down whatever road is coming next. And he's with us every step of the way, as we go out into his world to take our part in yet another day of mercy in his mission to call people from Judea, Samaria, and even the ends of the earth. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we struggle to process just how generous your grace is. Please open our eyes to see ourselves more clearly in light of the cross. Please teach us to see our world more like you do. Help us to believe that today is the day of your mercy and you are calling people, even people we might write off. Please give us the eyes to see this week the opportunities you give us, big and small, to be part of this great story of your grace. Amen.